Well, it has been a little while, so I think it's time to get back into the Gospel of Matthew. Go ahead and take your Bibles. You can open them up to Matthew chapter 12. I'd hoped to finish Matthew 12 right before Christmas. Didn't quite work out that way. But time to get back into it, get back up to speed. We've been in this long verse-by-verse trek through Matthew's Gospel. And Matthew 12, if you don't remember, represents a turning point in the ministry of Christ, where he faces really full rejection. So far, Jesus has been teaching, preaching, healing extensively. The people are amazed, or are they actually following him? Are they outright exclaiming him as the Messiah, which was so obvious? Well, no, they weren't. The same goes for the religious leaders of Israel. Only more so, the people are at best neutral to Jesus. The leaders are outright negative. That's because Jesus keeps calling them out. Everyone thought this group, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, everyone regarded them as so holy and righteous, but Jesus constantly exposes them as hypocrites and frauds, self-righteous. They don't truly follow God. They don't even know God. They're just after their own kingdom, their own glory. They prove that and that they refuse to humble themselves and come to Jesus. Even though Jesus himself has proven that he comes from God through countless signs and wonders, They can't accept him, for that would delegitimize their power. And so their only recourse is to delegitimize Jesus. They have to make sure that in the eyes of the people, he is not accepted as the Messiah, but is seen as a phony or a fraud. And that's why in chapter 12, we see this concerted effort to assassinate the character of Jesus kicking the high gear. Like verse 14 said, the Pharisees now have come together conspiring how they ought to destroy him. Jesus got to go. Now, at the time, it's easier said than done because the people are still wowed by Jesus. His miracles are undeniable. In fact, the people here, they're they're starting to come to the obvious conclusion. Like, maybe this Jesus really is the Messiah. When the Messiah comes, he's not going to perform more miracles than Jesus, will he? So, go back to verse 22 as a reminder. It says, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, And he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? After seeing a a string of miracles culminating with this amazing deliverance, how could you not think that Jesus was the son of David? But seeing this spark of faith light up in the people, the religious leaders instantly pulled out the fire extinguishers. They, They have to put out this thought. They can't let it grow. And so verse 24 says, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man casts out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Now we found that this is a big deal. And this is a turning point. They know they can't deny the power of Jesus. It's undeniable, but they can't deny its source. So they claim that Jesus, he's, he's not working by God's power, but the devil's. He's not spirit filled. He's Satan filled. This ridiculous claims leads to one of Christ's most stunning rebukes. To blaspheme the Holy Spirit like this is a sin that will not be forgiven. We spent weeks unpacking what follows there, a weighty text. But to suffice it to say that, that the religious leaders at this point are claiming he's Satan-inspired more or less really represents the peak of their heart rejection of Jesus And they're not going to stop now until they've convinced the rest of the people to start saying, crucify him. 
crucify him. Now, kind of back up to speed. There's one more passage here in Matthew 12 that adds to this sense of rejection theme of the chapter. We really hit the climax with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. But what follows is just a few more nails in the coffin of how they're rejecting him. We found this in our passage, verses 38 through 42. It all starts just with verse 38, which, apart from the context, you read that by itself, it might seem like an innocent request, but it's not. Considering the theme of rejection and what's already taken place, this really is an audacious statement. And let's just start verse 38. It says, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And teacher translates the Hebrew word for rabbi, a title of respect. But you remember like, wait, didn't the same people, scribes and Pharisees, didn't the same people just get finished telling the crowd that Jesus casts out demons by the power of Satan? And so now they're coming up to him, politely calling him teacher, rabbi. Do you think they're genuine at this point? No, this is very duplicitous. They're, they're merely trying to disarm Jesus through flattery as if he could succumb to such a technique. This request to see a sign was not given so that Jesus might prove himself. Their intent here is that he might disprove himself because they do not believe he could manifest such a sign. This is confirmed in the parallel account, Luke eleven sixteen, which says they came up to Jesus to test him. The purpose of this test was to discredit Jesus, prove he's not the Messiah. Because if he really were the Messiah, he could easily pull down a sign from heaven. And speaking of, that, they're asking for a sign from heaven. They demand a sign greater than those Jesus has already performed. Yeah, we've seen your miracles and your healing, but where's the big sign? They're looking for proof on a cosmic scale. Again, this is confirmed in the parallel, Luke eleven sixteen. They demand a sign from heaven. Joshua, he made the sun stand still for a day. Elijah withheld rain for three years. Jesus, what are you going to do? Let's see you like rearrange the constellations and then, then we'll believe in you. Now, later in Matthew chapter 16, the Pharisees return with the exact same test or prompt. Matthew 16 verse 1, it says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came up and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But again, do you see how ridiculous this request is? Jesus has already performed countless signs proving he is the Christ. Their only response to all the signs they already saw was to say, well, he's just demonic. He's doing this by the power of the devil. So really, what more could he do to convince them at that point? If they're that hardened, you think another sign is going to suddenly change their mind? They would just come up with another way to explain away what he did. I mean, that request later in Matthew 16, that one comes right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 4,000. Like right after that, that was a public miracle breaking the laws of nature, but that was not enough for them. What more could they want? So do you think the problem is with the signs of Jesus or with the blindness, the hardness of these people? You know, in Durham, North Carolina, there's a bridge that's been dubbed the Can Opener. Why would it be called the can opener? Well, it's because there's a very low clearance of 11 feet, 8 inches, and box trucks are known for disregarding the low height clearance warning and just plowing right into it. And so hundreds of collisions have happened, so much so that this bridge has its own website, its own documentary. (laughs) And this bridge never loses. 
because it's protected by a reinforced super thick bar of steel, a crash bar. And so as a result, when these trucks or when semis slam into it, they're just scalped. It's like a box opener, a can opener for trucks. And after a couple hundred collisions, and there's been hundreds, you think like, well, maybe the city should do something about this. But there are really no easy solutions. The road cannot be easily lowered because the sewer main runs right under the road. And the bridge cannot be easily raised because it hosts a train track. So if you're going to raise that bridge, you've got to regrade the rail lines for miles and raise a bunch of other bridges. Now, rails work. So the city's only lasting option was just to overinvest in warning signs. And just there's a one-way street leading up to this bridge, and it just has a ridiculous amount of warning signs. Upcoming height clearance turn. They also installed sensors to detect tall trucks. It detects a truck coming. It automatically gets a red light at the intersection right before the bridge. They're made to wait for 50 seconds, at which point a large LED sign, like, blasts in their faith, <laughs> low height clearance, just turn. Just turn left or right, and you'll find an easy way over the, the rails. Like warning signs, sensors, flashing lights. Do you think it works? <laughs> each, each month, month after month, truck after truck still just slams right into the bridge. Especially today with distracted drivers, you know how it goes. And I, I don't know this, but I would just bet you that each time these truck drivers all say the same thing. Like, why wasn't I warned? This is not fair. Where were the signs? Now I'm ruined because most car insurance companies don't pay for low-height clearance violations. And of course, after the fact, they can look back down the street and see all the signs they blew past, but then it's too late, and they are without excuse. I find many parallels here with what the Pharisees are doing. Because Jesus, he's given them sign after sign after sign that he is the Messiah. Just like he summarized back in chapter 11, verse 5. That the blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. Are those not enough for you? The scribes and the Pharisees have witnessed all this. It's like sign after sign has hit them right in the face. But they have ignored them, being blind and hardened. And they remain on this collision course with God's judgment because they refuse to repent, turn, and follow Jesus. And now it's, it's as if they're right about to hit this bridge God's judgment, but they have the audacity to say, like, look, I'll change my mind. I'll change course. Just prove to me that I won't make this clearance. Prove to me that I won't enter the kingdom unless I follow Jesus. Prove that he is Messiah. It's just a crazy level of rejection already at this point. And so after blowing past countless signs, how do you think Jesus will respond at this point? You really think he's like, all right, here's a little more water into wine. Now do you believe? How is he going to respond? Well, in the verses that follow, we see his response. Bottom line is this. His point is, you've seen enough. You've heard enough. You're on the hook. You're accountable. You have no excuse at this point. And if they still refuse to follow him, certain condemnation awaits. And that is still true today. That message, that warning, especially for those. This is especially the case if you grew up in the church, you've been exposed to the Bible, to preaching, to the gospel, you have no excuse. You have extra no excuse. And his warning, his message still very much applies. Let's see it now. Let's spend the rest of our time going through verses 39 through 42, unpacking this response, this warning, letting us know what we too are still held accountable to. 
There's two points, simple enough to follow along this passage. First, you are accountable to a greater sign. You are accountable to a greater sign. Still true, verse 39. But he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and no sign will be given it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. Now first I want to point out, verse 38, the scribes and the Pharisees are the ones who come up to Jesus, testing him, right? But he directs his response to the whole people, the whole generation. Is that fair? Well, yes, it is, because in reality, Jesus was being rejected by all the people, the whole generation. I mean, after all that Jesus had done, how many were truly following him? Even after the resurrection, he had max 500 true disciples, those to whom he appeared. It's not many. The people were taken aback by Jesus, but at the same time, their hearts were fickle. Most people are sheep, and not in a good way. Most people, even today, they don't think critically for themselves, and so they're prone to just blindly follow the loudest leader. In this past week, kind of entertaining, but a survey came out that found that one in five Americans said they would vote for whoever Taylor Swift endorsed. Like, talk about sheeple. And the Jews were no different. They were under the sway of the religious leaders. And since these leaders, they have refused to endorse Jesus. They're not going to endorse Jesus. So the people are like, well, he gives all these signs, but if our leaders don't endorse him, who are we to go against our leaders? A very few broke from the crowd, followed Jesus, suffered the cost. You're getting put out of the synagogue. You're getting excommunicated. Very few, but most didn't do that. This is a quick worthy par- or a sidebar. Go to John chapter 6. Keep your finger in Matthew 12. But look at this example, John chapter 6. Head over there real quick. Go to John 6. I'll start reading. John 6 verse 2. It says, A large crowd followed Jesus because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So once again, he's going around healing people. As he does so, more and more follow him. They want to get in on the action. They want to see, maybe be healed. Who wouldn't? But does this mean they were really following the Lord? No. Right after this, Jesus sees this massive crowd who has assembled. And what does he do? With compassion, he feeds them. Because they're starving. And so this is the feeding of the 5,000, which was an undeniable miracle. We talk about a sign from heaven. This is greater than manna coming down. The people are amazed by this sign. Verse 14, they're starting to get it. It says, therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, the feeding, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. Prophet corresponds to the Messiah, Deuteronomy 18, prophecy. The next day, the people come back. They're back to look for Jesus. Why is it, though? Do you think it's because they've come to bow down, follow him, worship him? We find that, no, that the reality is that they want more free bread. Look at verse 26. We're obviously just summarizing for time, but verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. And then he tells them, well, you should seek me, not the bread. He's, he's the bread of life. He can give them bread that leads to eternal life. They need to be seeking him. He clarifies in verse 29, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom 
he has sent. They need to believe. How do you think the people will respond to this? Well, let's listen to their response. This is the crowds now, and it's just as audacious as that from the scribes and Pharisees. Verse 30 says, that They said to him, What then do you do for a sign, so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. You see how they're clearly insinuating, like, the whole feeding of the 5,000 thing was nice, but that's not enough. Like, Moses gave a real sign. He made a rain manna from heaven. So, so what sign from heaven does Jesus perform? But again, you should be responding like, are you kidding me? That what unbelief, what spiritual blindness, what hardness of heart? Jesus goes on to tell them, no, no, guys, I am the bread of life. He is the one who has come down out of heaven. He is God's sign to them. And he's already performed countless signs proving he is the Christ. Like, What more could he do to demonstrate his deity and lordship that would convince them? But the people are not convinced, verse 41. Therefore, the Jews were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. He keeps reasoning with them over and over, but it's no use because the fact is, these people don't really believe in him. And they're not really following him. And at this point, a lot of people just stop pretending. And that's verse 66. The conclusion, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They gave it up. What Jesus said elsewhere proves true. John 4, 48, he said to the people, unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. And even then, when they saw him, their spiritual blindness prevented them from accepting his signs. Now back to Matthew 12. I just want to make that detour to affirm a big point that it's not just the spiritual leaders who are effectively rejecting Jesus at this point. It's all the people. They're neutral to him. That's the same as rejection, though. They've stopped short of following him. That's effectively rejection. In their hearts, few are bowing the knee to him as Lord. And so instead, Jesus says he's faced with an evil and adulterous generation. They're evil in the sense that they don't seek or obey God's will. They're adulterous in the sense that they're still going after other gods. Spiritual adultery. Yeah, it's true. After the Babylonian captivity, the Jews put away literal idols and Baal worship. But those were quickly replaced with money, power, tradition, and self. They were still idolatrous in heart, still unfaithful to God. Their lack of faith is seen in their craving for signs. You know, most Old Testament prophets did not produce signs, but the Jews came to put a lot of stock into signs. You might recall how Paul describes the Jews in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two: Greeks search for wisdom, but Jews demand a sign. But even though Jesus supplied countless signs, they all stumbled over the cross and they did not believe. And therefore what? What does Jesus say? Verse 39 is no more signs. That's all you're going to get. Verse 39. He says, and yet no sign will be given to it, but the sign of Jonah, the prophet. He's not saying he's not going to work any more miracles, but essentially the only sign from heaven that the people are really going to get is the sign of Jonah, the prophet. And that's it. That's all they get. This now leads us to ask, well, what is that? What is this sign of Jonah? 
probably heard of this before. How would you define it? Do you think you know? Jesus identifies it, but it, it still begs an explanation. Verse 40, he goes on. He says, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. At this point, you want to recall the narrative of Jonah. Jonah was a prophet in Israel, called by God to proclaim a message of judgment on the Ninevites. The Ninevite, Nineveh was the capital city of the kingdom of Assyria, and this was a completely wicked immoral, violent, pagan nation. And Jonah did not want to go to them because he feared they might repent and therefore God might relent. And he wanted to see them judged. So he hopped on a boat in the Mediterranean and sailed the opposite direction of Nineveh as far as he could go. And you know God sent a great storm. Jonah knew he was the cause of it. So they threw him overboard. It stopped. At this point, Jonah was effectively dead, as good as dead. He should have died. But God sent a great fish, which swallowed Jonah for three days, spit him up on shore. This was God humbling and breaking Jonah to his will. And Jonah got the message. He made his way over to Nineveh. He preached God's message of judgment. But lo and behold, the people did repent. Jesus himself affirms that they genuinely repented, turned to Yahweh, and he relented. Now, the thing is, Jonah was a prophet, He performed no signs or wonders. Also, Jonah gave no predictive prophecies about the Messiah. And so still we're wondering, like, okay, what is the sign of Jonah then? What did he do? We see in verse 40, Jesus associates the sign of Jonah with being in in the belly of the fish for three days, just as he was in the belly of the grave for three days. With this, Jesus is drawing a typological connection between Jonah and himself. Most Old Testament prophecy comes in the form of direct prediction, direct fulfillment. But sometimes Old Testament prophecy comes in the form of what we call types or typology. And this, it's actually pretty simple. It just refers to an Old Testament person or event that has some correspondence to the future Christ. A type, you might say, is a prophecy in pictures, not words. And so the connection is this, as Jesus spells it out. That just as Jonah was in the sea, in the belly of the sea for three days, so Jesus will be in the belly of the earth for three days. But just as Jonah was presented alive after, so will Jesus. So we find then Jonah's experience being a type, a picture of Christ's death, burial, and especially resurrection. To be even more precise, the sign of Jonah is not something he did It's Jonah himself. He was the sign. His presence is the sign and what it represented. When Jonah showed up to the Ninevites, he was a living sign to them. Yes, this presumes, Jonah just summarizes the book of Jonah, but this presumes that Jonah told them what had just happened to him, that he was as good as dead in the sea, but he was swallowed by the fish and spit up. But God presented him alive, and now he was there to testify to them, essentially alive from the dead, more or less. We can speculate here. Some have speculated also that Jonah's skin was bleached white from being in the fish. Who really knows? But the presence of this prophet who should have been dead, but now is alive, was a sign to the Ninevites. And even at that relatively minor sign, you might say, they they repented. They actually repented. They heeded that sign and they believed. 
Well, what Jesus is saying is he's going to give the same sign, only way greater, because he's, he's truly going to die. He will be dead and in the heart of the earth for three days. That just means the grave. Humanly speaking, he will be dead and gone. And with death, we all know there's no hope. But on the third day, he will be presented alive again, raising from the dead. And his very presence will be the sign to all the people that he is God. He is from God. You had better listen to him. Repent, believe, or you will perish. So putting all together then, the sign of Jonah is really the resurrection. Ultimately being alive from the dead, it's the resurrection. Christ's life after death is the ultimate sign in the whole Bible that everything he said is true, that Jesus is who he said he is, and you had better believe or you will perish. And before we think more on that, I want to very quickly address two important little tangents that come from this passage. The first, real quick, you should appreciate how Jesus affirms the historicity of Jonah. We know many people deny all the miracles, all the supernatural found in the Bible. At the very least, Jesus himself believed Jonah was a real person, and he really was swallowed by this great fish. He did not view that as myth or allegory, but as history. Same goes for many other Old Testament people. Miracles, Jesus affirmed them all as literally true. Hey, at the very least, that's good enough for Jesus. Good enough for me. Secondly, some people get tripped up on this verse because this is the one and only place where Jesus said he, he will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. If you take that with a, a wooden literalism, that's 72 hours. Well, that means we all know he rose on Sunday. That means he could not have been crucified on Friday. He must have died on a Wednesday or Thursday. But no, that is not the case. All the Gospels explicitly state that Jesus was crucified on the day of preparation for the Sabbath. That's called Friday. He was in the grave on the Sabbath. Saturday, he rose the next day, Sunday. So it's very explicit. But just for this one verse in Matthew 12, again, Jesus is making a typological connection with that figure of speech, we're not going to expect to press his words to extreme literalism. He's just making a parallel connection with Jonah. And at the same time, what Jesus says fits Jewish convention for how they reckon days. Jesus was using a common Jewish generalization where they counted any part of a day as the day. For example, the Jewish Talmud says, quote, any part of a day is as the whole, end quote. And so, yes, we know Jesus was not in the tomb for three 24-hour periods, but he still could be spoken of as being in the grave for three days, three parts of three days, by Jewish convention. This is supported elsewhere, like Matthew 16, 21, where Jesus says he will rise uh, on the third day, not after, on the third day. Anyway, there's a side note. There's no need to get hung up on this one verse. The timeline of the Passion is clear. Now, more importantly, though, let's get back to the, the point of this text. You look at this, you read this, it's, it's very easy to judge these people, the Pharisees and the people, just like it's very easy to judge the wilderness generation of Israelites. I mean, like, they saw the ten plagues, the parting of the Red Sea, but they still did not trust and obey God. And these people saw all the signs of Jesus, but they still refused to believe in him. How could that be? How could they not follow? It's so obvious, and we judge them. You have to realize this passage, it happened to them, but it's not being written for them. It's now being written for us. 
It's meant to question us. Do you believe? And do you heed the signs? To this, some would say, like, well, I've not seen any signs. You show me the proof, and maybe I'll believe. Just like the Jews, many today still demand a sign. Show me. Where is the risen Lord? But haven't we already learned? People don't believe because of a lack of evidence. At the end of the day, they don't believe because they're not broken over their sin. They refuse to humble themselves, and they don't want a Lord over their lives telling them what to do or how to live. Archaeologists could discover Noah's Ark tomorrow with the same dimensions as the book of Genesis. Do you think that would suddenly convince everyone to believe? They'd find some other explanation to reason it away, to not bow the knee, some excuse, or they would want more. Look, bottom line, how many times has Jesus been vindicated with what he said in Luke 16.31 in that parable? The, The punchline was this. If they do not believe Moses and the prophets... They will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. If you're not convinced by the sign of the scriptures, what else is going to open your eyes? Now, thankfully, though, God still softens hearts and opens eyes and calls people to himself. And he does so not through signs, certainly not ordinarily, but through the power of his word. When you really think about it, are you not holding in your hands the great sign of God? Christ viewed the scriptures as a greater sign even than resurrection. If someone rises from the dead, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even if someone rises from the dead, which, which, which is weightier to Jesus. It's the testimony of the resurrection found in his word. The Bible itself is God's sign to you of all these things, most of all, the risen Christ. You've got Moses and the prophets. Now you also have Jesus and the apostles. You, you have everything God wants you to have. God gives to all people, first, the sign of general revelation. That's Romans 1, right? God has made his existence and his power known through the created world. You really thought that 100 billion galaxies, each with 100 billion stars, came from nothing? You're without excuse. All unbelief is without excuse. But on top of this, God has given his special revelation, the scriptures, meant, above all, to be a testimony of his son, Christ Jesus. God did not have to make a way of salvation, and he didn't have to make it known, but he did both. And the way of salvation, this way goes through the risen Christ, but you only hear about this way through the scriptures, the the word that points you to the way of Christ. And so we're holding here the manifold eyewitness testimony of this gospel Namely that Christ, the Son of God, came, died on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins, rose on the third day. And just like he said back in John chapter 6, verse 40, Christ said, everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. You too will be raised. But some might still say, well, it's not fair though. Show show me the risen Christ. Show me him personally risen. I don't need the Bible. Show me him and then I'll believe. Just like Thomas, I won't believe until I see the scars in his hands. But you have to understand it's simply by God's will that his gift of salvation is accessed through faith. It's received by faith. You're not going to get around faith. What is faith? Hebrews 11.1. It's the conviction of things not seen. We do not see him. That does not mean, though, our faith is blind. You're holding 
an undeniable mountain of evidence, but it still does require trust. The way to God is only opened by faith. John 20, 29, as Jesus said to that doubting Thomas, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who did not see and yet believed. And so the, the takeaway here is pretty obvious. Believe on Jesus. Believe in the risen Lord. If you could really pick on one thing, though, believe even because of the resurrection. Believe because of the sign of Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection was always meant to be God's paramount sign that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. You're safe with putting all the, the eggs of faith in the basket of the resurrection. All of them can go there. If, if he rose, it's all true. If he didn't, nothing's true. You don't have to turn, but listen to John 2, 18 through 22. Another case where they come up to Jesus looking for a sign. John 2, verse 18, the Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Because he just cleansed the temple. Like, Who do you think you are? What sign do you perform? Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. The point is, his resurrection was always meant to be the sign. All throughout the New Testament, the resurrection of Jesus is the sign of signs. It's the chief reason you should believe. The resurrection is central to all apostolic preaching. Just open the book of Acts, read it yourself. Every sermon, they're pointing the risen Christ as the reason. At the end of the day, he conquered death. It's the linchpin of the faith. You go read 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, you pull out this card, the whole, the whole deck of cards, the whole house of cards falls down. He says, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain. Our faith is in vain. We are false witnesses of God. He says, you're still dead in your sins. Your faith is worthless. We are of all men most to be pitied. That's a big if, but it's true. If he did not rise, it's all pointless. And so this brings really the question of all questions. You must answer in your own heart, did Jesus rise from the dead? You have the overwhelming and consistent eyewitness testimony of the apostles. You're holding the Bible. You have the historic proof of this thing called the church came from somewhere. But look, you search, you seek, you question, did Jesus rise? If not, you should reject everything about Christianity as false, misleading, then it is demonic. But if he did rise, then you know what that means. It means everything he said was true. Everything he did was true. It means he really is the only sacrifice for our sins. He's the only way to God and to salvation. It also means that every single word of scripture is true, because that's what he believed. It means nothing else in the Bible is hard to believe. I mean, Noah's Ark, Jonah's fish, those are small things. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, he can violate any of the laws of nature he made. If Jesus rose, above all, it means he really is Lord. That he is Lord of lords, it means every knee will bow to him as he sits in judgment over all. But it also means, therefore, he can save you. He can save you if you repent, believe, and follow him. 
So do you believe? Will you follow him? You know Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that uh, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In your heart of hearts, have you bowed that knee to him as the risen Lord? If some of you are here this morning and, and you say, I do believe, but you know secretly you're, you're struggling to believe. You're wrestling with doubt. I would say that's not uncommon. You don't need to be ashamed. With the proud, the obstinate, the Lord was harsh. But a battered reed, he will not break. With, with the believing, the faithful, the meek, the weak, though, he's nothing but compassionate. And if that's you, I would just say, don't let your doubts cause you to turn away from him. But the opposite, take all of your questions your fears, your doubts to him. You draw near in prayer and say, Father, I do believe, help my unbelief. And then what do you do after that to grow? Do you demand a sign? Lord, just give me a sign, then now I'll really take this for real. And we don't need to put God to the test and demand a sign as if you are Lord and he should do what you say. But no, he's already given you what you need to feed and build that faith. He's given you his word. And so now you just need to get into the scriptures, study them, read, meditate. It will prove itself. As Spurgeon said of the Bible, speaking of the Bible, he says, I don't need to defend a lion. I just need to let it out of its cage. It will defend itself. But draw near in faith. You pray Psalm 119 verse 18, Lord, uh, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Just open my eyes. Let your faith in Christ Grow deeper. Now back to Matthew 12 here. We need to finish up. I wanted to get through all the way through verses 43 and 45 in this section, but we had baptism, we got communion, so we'll have to save that for next week. Let's at least include verses 41 and 42 here. Overall, Jesus is letting them know they're on the hook. They've seen enough, they've heard enough, they're accountable to believe in him. And if they don't, especially now, they will receive a greater condemnation. They're on the hook. They're accountable. Still true for us. They're first accountable to a greater sign. Secondly, now, you are accountable to a greater preacher. This will be brief, but you're accountable to a greater preacher. That greater preacher, of course, is the Lord Jesus. They had heard his testimony, as have we, in his word. I mean, week after week, we sit studying the testimony of Christ. That comes with greater accountability. You should know, like, sitting in church your whole life is dangerous. You will be held accountable to all the greater light you have received. What did you do with it? Did you actually believe and obey or not? But especially if you reject this testimony and and don't believe, like them, you will receive a greater condemnation. That's what Jesus says. I'm not making it up. Verse 41. He says, thereafter, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it. Because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Now, back in Matthew 11, Jesus said it would be more tolerable for Sodom in judgment than Capernaum, because they would have repented at the seeing all of his miracles. His point was that just the, the Jews were known for such a, a special hardness of heart, theirs is a greater condemnation. They rejected the greater light. And the same here, he's making the same point here. The only difference between the Sodomites and the Ninevites is that, well, the Ninevites, they actually repented even more so. Think about the Ninevites. They they were really a wicked, immoral people. They didn't have God's word. 
or God's promises. They were Gentiles. They were pagans. Just think about that, that one friend or relative you know who, humanly speaking, you think they're never going to come to salvation. They'll never be a Christian. That was the Ninevites. But then what do you know? At the preaching of mere Jonah, they repented. At the sign of Jonah, him being found alive after certain death, they repented. And Jonah 3 affirms that they turned from their wicked ways and they called on God. Now contrast this with the Jews of Jesus' day. They had God's word, his promises, the temple, the priests, kings, prophets. They were righteous, so they thought they were God's people. They knew God, so they claimed. Now along comes, not Jonah, but a much greater prophet, Jesus. He is, in fact, Christ, the Son of God. And, you know, Jonah worked no signs and wonders. Jesus, countless. But before this greater preacher, with his greater testimony, did they, did they repent and believe? Do we find the Jews believing more wholeheartedly than the Ninevites because a greater preacher is before them? No, they, they didn't repent at all. In fact, they will reject Jesus. They will crucify him. It's meant to come off. This is just an unthinkable level of hardness, but... At the same time, that was our level of hardness before the Lord opened our eyes. But this is what happened. And the point is, yes, the men of Nineveh will rightly stand up at the judgment and condemn them, be witnesses against them for their unbelief. They will receive a greater condemnation. Jesus makes the same point in a different way. Verse 42, he says, The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Here Jesus switches subjects. That's the same idea. He highlights the queen of the south. He's talking about the queen of Sheba. This comes from 1 Kings 10. She hailed from modern-day Yemen. It's about 1,200 miles southeast of Jerusalem. And back then, for her to travel to Jerusalem was a long, dangerous, costly journey, but she did it. Why would she do this? 2 Kings 10.1 says, She had heard about the fame of Solomon concerning the name of Yahweh and wanted to test him with difficult questions. Kind of like the scribes are doing with Jesus. Like, are, are you for real? And is your God for real? Talk about a seeker. But she found that, yes, the wisdom of Solomon is real and his God is real. And so it says she blessed Solomon and she blessed Yahweh. But again, you can see now the contrast Here's this queen of the south. She's coming from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, this great king and this great preacher. But now someone greater than Solomon is here. We've got a greater king, a greater preacher, Jesus. And before him, these Jews, they don't have to travel very far to to check him out. For them to seek Jesus, just like go down the street. It's easy for them to seek out Jesus and the wisdom of God. But again, do they? The contrast, the kicker is, Even though he's just down the street, they don't care. They don't want to. They don't care about his wisdom or his majesty. The people are, again, neutral, apathetic at best. But you need to know that neutrality is effectively the same as rejection. And so the queen of the south will likewise stand up at the judgment and bear witness against that generation. That they rejected the wisdom of God in Jesus And so, indeed, their condemnation will be greater. We have to conclude here, but but don't let this message fall on deaf ears. That all are left 
without excuse, especially us. We, we hear the word. We're in church. We are more so without excuse. We've encountered the risen Lord and his word time and time again. You can easily say we're more accountable today. We have the full testimony of the scriptures. We have the eyewitness testimony. We have the sign of Jonah. Therefore, repent and believe the preaching of Jesus in his gospel. You are on the hook. This Jesus, his birth came with a great sign, the virgin birth. His death came with a great sign, the veil tears in two. His resurrection came with a great sign, the tomb was empty. His resurrection itself was the greatest sign. God has supplied us with all that we need to believe. But he has still insisted on the necessity of faith, believing without seeing. Still, believe on the Lord Jesus today. And if you're here and you do believe, take that faith deeper. Believe more. Deepen your faith, your conviction, your confidence in this risen Lord. It's right after the resurrection, right after the Doubting Thomas episode. It's no coincidence that the Apostle John in his gospel, right there is when he decided to insert his whole purpose for writing. Even though we're in Matthew, this gives us a fitting final word. John 20, 30 and 31. John says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Let us believe upon him. Let's pray together. Our God in heaven, we thank you for the sign of Jonah, the sign of Christ risen from the dead. Apart from that, we would have no hope for, for death would win. Death would be still sitting in victory, undefeated. Satan still the master of this world. And all of us lost, dead, captive in our sins without any hope. But as this Savior, our Savior, paid for our sins, finished his atonement, drank the cup all the way, it passed from him. He rose Again, the tomb was found empty and cannot be explained away. In that, we have nothing but hope that his gospel is real. He, he really did pay for our sins. And his salvation is real. Those who humble themselves, see their sin, are convicted by it, and now just simply turn to him. Their only hope can be forgiven, wiped clean, saved, made new. This Christ really is the only way, the truth, the life. No one comes to you Father, but through him. Convict us this morning. Convince us. Open our eyes to behold these, these truths. Help us happily put all of our faith in this resurrection. For if Jesus rose, everything is true. Our faith is secure. And it is. We thank you for opening our eyes. We pray you do so with all of us, all those around us, our loved ones, those who do not yet know you. May we boldly testify to them of, of the means by which you do that, your word and the power of the gospel, where they too can encounter this risen Christ. Build us up in our faith, and we now live that faith out, uh, representing this risen Christ to the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen.